Most likely someone in your life has benefited from receiving an implantable device. Thousands of these procedures happen annually, and some happen with such regularity they almost feel commonplace. There is no denying that medical devices can be life-changing, resolving major problems and alleviating pain. And sometimes they can even save a person's life in an instant. I am so pleased to introduce you to Dr. Guy Leclerc, who will share the story of his work and a very special patient, Isabel, whose life was dramatically impacted by medical device intervention. Thank you for joining us today, Guy. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, good morning. My background is cardiology. I was trained in Montreal in more specifically interventional cardiology and then did a postdoc research fellowship in Boston for three years in the field of genetics and gene therapy and came back to Montreal. And since for the last 30 years, I've been uh, deeply involved in both clinical cardiology and research. In uh, 1992, I did establish a purely academic lab here in Montreal at the uh, University of Montreal Hospital Center. And through the years, my research brought me to uh, create companies like Biotech in 1997, and ultimately created as well Axel Lab, a preclinical CRO dedicated to uh, medical devices in 2004. Wonderful. I know that Charles River was lucky enough to form a close relationship with Excel Lab and bring you into our company, and I'm so thankful for that. Uh, you have really expanded our world with regard to medical devices. How did medical devices start to become important in your life? How did you know that was the area you wanted to focus? Well, it's an important aspect of my research uh, field that was developed through the years that brought me to focus on medical devices. In 1997, I created the biotech company and that biotech company had the mandate to develop specific products for the field of cardiovascular therapeutics. And in the course of developing these uh, products, we had to test these products in animal models to ensure their safety and their efficacy as well. And alongside the work we were doing on our own products, we started performing animal model testing for other corporations that needed to verify the safety and the efficacy of their products. And these products were mainly medical devices like stents, balloon catheters, and guide wires. And we noticed through the years that there was a need in this area for medical devices to be tested in a rigorous fashion, in a high-quality environment, with people knowledgeable in this field. So in 2004, after selling the biotech company, I decided to focus my research time on developing a corporation that would have the clear mandate to support the development of medical devices in a high quality environment with professional people that were specifically dedicated for that purpose. And that's basically how we got started in this uh, field very actively. Wonderful. I bet you have seen a lot of progress in this area. One thing that struck me as I was 
reading your background was that you straddle both the world of research, as you just mentioned, and your work in the hospital with patients. And I wondered how you balance that and how does that one influence the other? The uh, balance between research and clinical uh, duties is one that is uh, always challenged on a daily basis. However, I was able at the offset of my career to establish boundaries between uh, research and clinical activities. As soon as I returned to Montreal after my research fellowship, it was clearly established in my mind, based on the recommendations from my mentor in Boston, that I should devote at least 70% of my work in research in order to be capable of performing at a high level. At the same time, having 30% of my time protected for clinical duty would ensure that I would remain proficient and capable of achieving the same quality work as my colleagues. So ever since I started in this field, ever since I started my career, I've always kept that balance of approximately 70% of my time dedicated to research and 30% to uh, clinical duties. That has permitted me to have a unique perspective from the clinical expertise that I can bring to high efficiency in the field of research. I can talk to my colleagues in research about what's hot and what's not in the field of clinical medicine. Wonderful. I can't wait to hear more about that. And I think as you share the story of Isabel, that might even bring it to life more. So I was Fortunate enough to see this wonderful video about Isabel, a patient who you worked with, and was wondering if you would share how you came to know Isabel and a little bit about her story. Well, Isabel is uh, a patient that's been uh, treated for uh, a severe aortic stenosis, which is a cardiac condition, which left untreated could lead to death within the first or the second year of the uh, diagnosis. So Isabel was being treated at our hospital for other reasons than cardiology condition. She was on uh, hemodialysis because she does have chronic uh, renal failure. And because of all the comorbidity, she was a patient known by the nephrology service and the pneumology service also for a lung condition. And we came across Isabel in the field of cardiology when she was hospitalized at our emergency room approximately a year ago. And she came to the emergency room because she presented with a severe shortness of breath. And in the course of the evaluation of Isabel, we noticed that when we were auscultating her heart, we could listen to a severe murmur at the aortic area. And following a transthoracic echocardiogram, we were able to make the diagnosis of a severe aortic valve stenosis in Isabel's cases. And essentially, at that point, she became a patient in the field of cardiology. She was hospitalized in our ward. And ultimately, that's uh, how we eventually got to treat her 
with this uh, new technology that ultimately saved her life. And that is what I would love to hear about this new technology. How did it come to be and how has it helped Isabel? The uh, diagnosis of an aortic valve stenosis is one that requires the assessment of the severity of the disease. And in the case of Isabel, it was noted that the aortic valve that she had was very severely stenosed. So this means that if we didn't do anything to improve her medical condition, she would be facing death within the first or the second year of follow-up. When a patient presents with uh, severe aortic stenosis, you have to um, evaluate the patient in order to relieve the aortic stenosis. And that has been done until recently strictly by submitting the patient to a cardiac open heart surgery. So this means that in order to save Isabel and to permit her to continue a normal life with a high quality, uh, she would have to undergo a cardiac surgery to replace her aortic valve. However, Isabel is a 76-year-old patient with large amount of comorbidities, in other words, many other diseases that did render an eventual cardiac surgery very risky. So we had to look for alternatives. What were the alternatives to cardiac open-heart surgery? Medical therapy. Medical therapy is an approach where you will give oral medication to the patient, and uh, hopefully you'll try to relieve the patient from its symptoms. But in the case of aortic stenosis, that is not really an option because you actually have a mechanical obstacle to the blood flow trying to be ejected from the heart into the great circulation. So medical therapy with oral medication is really not an option. Surgery was not an option. So we reverted to the third possibility, which is called a TAVI, a a transfermal aortic valve implantation. In other words, we opted for a new option which permits us to replace the aortic valve without opening up the chest by inserting the valve through the femoral area using a catheter deployment strategy and ultimately replace the valve that gave so much problem to Isabel. So that procedure is called a TAVI procedure. We will refer to the terminology TAVI in the case of Isabel. And we did propose the TAVI procedure to Isabel. And after much thinking about it and presenting her the strategy, presenting to her what the risks were, and presenting to her the physician that would perform the procedure, she ultimately accepted to uh, uh, undergo this uh, procedure at our hospital center. So what does a TAVI look like? And how did it come to be available for patients like Isabel? So the TAVI procedure is essentially a cardiac valve replacement strategy. So essentially, the TAVI catheter itself 
is represented by a valve, which is made of uh, either porcine valvular uh, material or uh, bovine pericardial material. And that valve is inserted in a metallic structure, which is called a stent. And that stent is actually crimped or inserted onto a balloon catheter, the balloon being located at the distal tip of the long catheter that we're going to insert through the femoral area. And thus the valve within the stent is crimped very tightly on the balloon catheter at the distal end of the uh, long, approximately 140 centimeter catheter that we will insert through the femoral area, take up all the way through the uh, aorta, and then position right in front or across actually the native aortic valve. And once in position, we will inflate the balloon catheter and literally crush the native valve that is diseased and replace it with a stent within which there is a valvular prosthesis made of porcine material or bovine material. And immediately after the delivery of the stent, the valve becomes functional. It's really quite impressive to see that procedure. Now, in terms of developing these products, that's an important question where Axelab, which is now part of Charles River, has played a key role. These devices have been developed for the past several years by major device uh, manufacturers. And one of these manufacturers came to uh, our group to support them to develop these products in animal models to ensure that the new devices to treat aortic stenosis would be secure and would be efficient as well. So our group worked with our clinicians uh, specialized in structural heart disease and worked with the preclinical team at Axel Lab to design studies and prepare an animal model that would serve to study the performance of these new TAVI catheters. And this is exactly what we did with a company uh, named Boston Scientific, with whom we ultimately published articles and abstracts on this technology. So we use, in order to test the safety and efficacy of the TAVI medical device, we used a sheep animal model to perform the procedures. Why did we use a sheep model? The sheep model is an animal model that is interesting for that purpose because it does have an aortic valve that resembles very much that of humans in terms of function and size. Uh, also, the uh, femoral area of the sheep model is sufficiently large to accept these catheters that we're using to be inserted in the femoral area and to bring the stented valve all the way up to the heart. In the course of the uh, studies to examine the safety and efficacy of the Boston Scientific TAVI product, we examined the safety and efficacy in about 50 animals 
that were tested with these valves. And we were ultimately convinced after these studies that the product was very secure and was effective to treat an aortic valve stenosis in a patient. Ultimately, the studies that were conducted within Charles River Medical Device Group led to the performance of the first North American deployment of a Boston Scientific CAVI valve in a patient at the University of Montreal Hospital Center. So this development ultimately permitted us both at Charles River and at the University Hospital to play a dominant role in this field and to be able to offer to patients this new technology that literally will be replacing, to a certain extent, cardiac surgery for aortic valve disease. Want even more science stories? Head over to eureka.criver.com to listen to Sounds of Science. Join me, Mary Parker, as I interview drug discovery researchers, thought leaders on trending industry topics, and patients with a personal stake in the newest pharma research. I cover topics from horseshoe crab evolution to cancer treatment with guests who bring a big picture perspective to science stories. Tune in every month for Sounds of Science at eureka.criver.com. Wow, what a very interesting reflection on that development. And it makes me think back to Isabel and where we started on this conversation. How did this procedure go for Isabel, given that it was her kind of last hope, it sounds like? Um, and how is she doing now? The procedure was absolutely remarkable and had no complications and was a total success. Isabel underwent the procedure on a Thursday morning, and ultimately she left the hospital on Friday afternoon the next day. Wow. And I have seen Isabel upon follow-up since then, and she has resumed a totally normal life a life that she had somehow forgotten for the past few years, not knowing what was the cause of her shortness of breath. So from a clinical standpoint, Isabel's case has been extremely gratifying at our end because we were able to resolve the problem. And at Isabel's end, it was a total success because she was able to resume a normal life and contemplate a bright future, even though she's 76 years old. How wonderful. That's just so inspirational and gives me so much hope for the future of medical devices. And I guess I don't even really think about medical devices that much in my everyday life. But when I hear about stories like this, it really does make me think of all the huge impact that devices have on everybody. Everyone's been touched by something that falls into this category, whether it's dental or um, your knee replacement or, or that type of thing. So wonderful to hear that the advances are so incredible. Yes. I uh, appreciate you sharing Isabel's very inspirational story. And I'm fascinated by your 70-30 model where 70% of your time is focused on the R&D and 30% on the clinical pieces. 
what's a typical day like for you or a week? Uh, are you jetting back and forth between the hospital or, you know, just kind of curious, how does a day look like for you, Yi? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, the fun part of my career is that there's not a boring day, uh, mm. any day. Every day is a, is a different day than the past one and the next one. I try to um, get my clinical duties done in a concentrated way so that I can exercise uh, my activities of research during the time that is before and after the clinical time. Uh, in other words, it is very difficult to do both at the same time. You cannot be, for instance, in the operating room performing cardiac interventions and uh, at the same time conducting conference calls and uh, speaking with colleagues or correcting study plans or correcting reports of uh, certain studies. So what I try to do is really focus on clinic when I'm scheduled in clinic. Uh, for instance, this week, I've been scheduled in the clinic for two days, and the remainder of the week will be spent looking at various aspects of the research, performing conference call with my colleagues across the world at Charles River, and interacting more specifically with our team here in Boisbriand that's really focused on medical device and trying to troubleshoot some of the issues that they may be encountering in the current difficult times of the pandemic. Through your career, are there moments that come to mind as something you're most proud of or experiments or discoveries, or is there anything that kind of tops the list? You're quite an accomplished person. So I don't know if this is a hard question or an easy question, but um, just curious. No, it's an easy question, Gina. Okay. You know, I, I really feel privileged and I feel that I have the best of both worlds because research is so rewarding and uh, clinical also is extremely rewarding. And actually, when you combine the both, I find myself in that situation where I get involved in cardiac interventions in the operating room, and I actually use some medical devices that were the subject of studies at Charles River Medical Devices Group. So doing the research on a medical device that has cardiac applications, and ultimately several months or several years later, to be able to use these exact same medical devices that we tested in preclinical models, but use them in actual patient, that is extremely rewarding. And I can tell you that often I will tell my colleagues when they use such and such medical device that, you know, guys, this was tested and approved at Charles River. Wow. So that makes me extremely proud. Yeah, it's like it comes around full circle. Exactly. And you can see the impact of that early work. So it is really fascinating to see the creation and evolution of medical devices through your eyes. And I suspect that the current pandemic situation that we're in and the different world that we're all in at the moment has perhaps impacted your view of things as well. Is there anything you can share with us around medical devices, the future, or even what you're experiencing now that you think would be interesting or helpful for us to know? 
Absolutely, Gina. This pandemic has truly impacted everything that we do, uh, both in research and at the clinical level. Let me focus more specifically on the clinical level because it will have direct implications on the medical device world. Obviously, the pandemic has had a huge impact on the strategy of identifying who did get infected with the COVID-19 virus. And all the diagnostic tools, which are actually medical devices, will play a critical role on how the world will evolve from this pandemic. In our group, we focus more on implantable medical device. But still, you have to recognize that medical devices that are capable of creating a rapid diagnosis for who's infected and who's not, who has the antibodies to protect them and who hasn't. These medical devices that are diagnostic will play a key role in solving the problem for the planet. Now, the pandemic has also revolutionized how we practice medicine. I cannot see my patients on a face-to-face manner at the outpatient clinic because of the pandemic and because we want to reduce the risk of transmitting this disease. Thus, we're currently relying heavily on telemedicine to make sure that our patients are doing well. But you have to understand that the vast majority of of our patients are patients of geriatric age. They're in their 70s, their 80s, their 90s, and often, aside being able to tell us over the phone or over a FaceTime call how well they're doing, it's very hard for them to communicate their vital signs to us. And I think that for that matter, the development of certain medical devices may play in the future a tremendous role in creating a small revolution in the field of telemedicine. Let me be more precise. I think that in the future, we will need more tools that are capable of measuring blood pressure with devices that are applied to the patient's arm, but that can transmit by Bluetooth or by any other means the data that the patient is collecting from its blood pressure monitoring device. I will go even further. I think it's not impossible that one can imagine ultimately that one day we'll be able to implant small devices in the uh, wrist of the patient that is capable of monitoring the blood pressure and the heart rate of a patient from its radial artery and transmit that by Wi-Fi to the physician cabinet so that the data that is provided by the patient is extremely reliable and not dependent on an action of a nurse or even an action by the patient himself that may not be capable of doing it correctly because of his uh, very advanced age. Uh, There are already medical devices that are being developed in order to monitor non-invasively through the implantation of a 
computer chip in the uh, pulmonary artery of a patient, these devices are now capable of transmitting the online pulmonary pressure uh, to a physician that can react at a distance from the patient and prescribe medication to make sure that the overall condition of the patient will not deteriorate based on the readings of the pressure that was made by the permanently implanted computer chip. So basically, Gina, what I'm talking about is monitoring of vital signs of specific pressures that are very useful for a physician to modulate the treatment at a distance from the patient. And I think this pandemic gave us really an electroshock, a real uh, a reality check on the need for the development of more tools for telemedicine and monitoring our patients in a better way at a distance. And medical devices will bring solutions to these problems. Interesting. Well, it, it certainly is putting us to the test. And I think we'll come out on the other end, probably all living life a bit differently. And it sounds like through your eyes, it will involve closer monitoring through those implanted devices, as well as maybe different experiences with our physicians moving forward. Really helpful to hear that and, and very interesting, of course. So this rapid evolution of technology, I'm sure leads to an increasing need for funding in order to offer the best possible care to the growing number of people who suffer from cardiac diseases. Can you elaborate um, with us on your relationship with the Hospital Center of the University of Montreal? I believe you refer to um, that group as SHUM. I can imagine that the SHUM Foundation serves as a catalyst and a driving force in carrying out your mission. And I'd love to hear more about your affiliation with the organization. Absolutely, Gina. All of that would not have been possible without the support of the uh, University Hospital here in Montreal. Initially, the uh, University Hospital of uh, Montreal, the SHUM, made a commitment with me to enable me to protect 70% of my time to research. And uh, even though I started in purely academic research, that ultimately evolved towards translational research, which is research in preclinical models, and actually the creation of a corporation like Axel Lab, which ultimately became part of Charles River. So I'm extremely uh, proud and uh, I do recognize the contribution of the uh, University of Montreal Hospital Center for that matter. And I do recognize the importance of our collaboration with such an expert clinical site as we often collaborate in various studies for the development of medical devices. So it is clear that the foundation of the uh, University of Montreal Hospital Center is a very important foundation for me and I think it does merit and deserve our support. We'll make sure to put a link to that in our show notes for sure, as I uh, would like to give some visibility to that important group. Is there anything we didn't cover today that you wanted to share about your work, 
are or the future of medical devices? I think, Gina, the discussions that we had was uh, quite comprehensive. I do believe that we covered pretty much everything. I think that maybe the only other point that I would like to stress is that medical devices will play an important role in the uh, improvement in our uh, life expectancy and in our quality of life. And that concept has been well understood by the big players of the high-tech world, the Google, the Apple, the Samsung of this world. And literally, you've seen the high-tech play all-in with medtech as they are now heavily involved in financing ventures to develop some critical and revolutionary uh, medical devices to help patients in the future. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Guy Leclerc, for spending some time with us today at Vital Science, sharing your uniquely fascinating and important world. I am so grateful for your commitment to improving human health. Thank you. It's my privilege, Gina. Thank you. Many of us are familiar with medical devices, but we don't always get to hear about how they are innovated, developed, tested, and then placed in humans, changing their lives for the better. Inventors like Dr. Leclerc show such incredible innovation, and their dedication is truly changing lives. To learn more, check out the show notes where you can find a link to a video of Isabel's story, as well as more about Dr. Leclerc's work. Do you have a suggestion, episode idea, or a great story to tell? Contact us at vitalscience at crl.com. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at criver.com slash vitalsciencepodcast. Also, be sure to check out our sister podcast, Sounds of Science, focusing on innovation and trends in the life science industry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Vital Science. I'm Gina Mullane. Have a great day.